Congregation, we just sang, I sought the Lord in prayer. He heard my plea and answered me. And we followed with these words, when this poor man cried out for help, the Lord delivered him. We don't know who that poor man is. But we do have one example of a man who cried out to God, and God heard him in powerful ways. That's from the life of Jehoshaphat. So let's, let's read our text for the sermon this morning from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, 1 to 12. A little extra reading this morning, but it gives you a bit more of a context to the book of Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 1. It happened after that this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then someone came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria. And they are in Hazon Tamar, which is in Engedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sore judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is, is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. That is the word of the Lord. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, serving overseas and often thinking about Canada, one of the things I I get to hear quite a bit is that Canada is one of the best places in the world to live. The Australians think it's Australia, but as Canadians we think Canada is one of the best places in the world to live. And, And both the secularists and the Christian think the same, that we think that Canada is a pretty special place, and it is. We have the freedom of assembly, the freedom of religion. The freedom to set up a day school for our children, a Christian day school. The freedom to run an enterprise, businesses. And in so many ways, beloved, we are blessed to be Canadian citizens. Very blessed. But the question that we need to answer and the truth that we need to ponder this morning is not how blessed are we? But the question really is, how blessed is God on account of us, on account of the blessings he gives us? 
This is an impossible question to answer, but is God more blessed by Canadian citizens who are his children than, say, his children who are in Iraq or Iran or Egypt or Syria or India? You say, well, that, that's not possible to answer, Pastor Ian. We don't know if God's more blessed by his children in Iraq than he is by his children in Canada. One receiving no blessings, it seems, from his father's hands, not monetary and not land, at least, and the freedom to worship. But if we look at it through the context of prayer, we can get a bit of a feeling for the answer to this question. We confess in Lord's Day 45 that prayer is the most important part of our thankfulness, which God desires of us. The psalmist says in 116, what shall I render to my Savior now for all the benefits that he has given us? What shall I give back to my Lord for all his blessings? And the psalmist says, I will hold up the cup of salvation. So I will give gratitude for that cup, for that work of God's grace in my life, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. So response to his blessings is a people responding in Prayer. But herein lies the problem, beloved, and it's our problem, and it's God's covenant people's problem from the beginning, at least as they left Egypt, that when blessings increase, often prayers don't. In fact, you can often see it in the pattern of, of God's children that when blessings increase, prayers actually decrease. What a strange phenomenon. And God warned this. Warned this. He, he knew this was going to happen. He says in Deuteronomy 8 verse 10, And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But then he says this, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. And then you say, because we're so proud, By my power and the might of my hand, I have gotten all these things. And when you start looking in, you forget to look up. And when you start looking in, you forget to pray. And Israel gave up on prayer. They didn't really need to pray. So often in redemptive history, we don't see a people on their knees in prayer. And so often even God's children today forget to pray. We buy cars, we go on vacations, we go to the doctor, we go about our work, we have coffee with friends, we talk to our brothers and sisters, even we talk about our brothers and sisters, and we do not put it all in prayer. And then we have meetings, and so many of our meetings are not based on the foundation of prayer. No, in our meetings we have a little appendix asking God to bless all the decisions that we have. Well, maybe we should have started with prayer and let that be the foundation of all of our decisions God says in 2 Chronicles 6 verse 17 if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways I will hear from heaven and heal their land if my people would pray I think there's a song about that out there but we are beloved a a congregation of prayer. We are to be and are a people of prayer. And so the question 
the question that I have this morning, is it possible, even for this whole day, because I'll be with you this afternoon, the Lord willing, the question is, is this, is it possible to have a vibrant, active, God-glorifying, faith-maturing, love-enhancing, kindness-generating, soul-enriching, life-changing, Christ-directing, word-saturating, prayer life? Is it possible? Is it possible in our materialistic, narcissistic, self, selfie age, in the country we call Canada, where we are so richly blessed to be a people of fervent prayer, is that possible? Of course it is. Of course it is. You can do all things through him who strengthens you. Even have a blessed prayer life. But the battle is fierce, beloved. The battle is fierce. And the need for encouragement in this area of prayer, especially at the beginning of a new year, is a word in season. And today we're going to examine an Old Testament story where prayer cuts through wealth, cuts through power, cuts through alliances, cuts through prosperity, cuts through strategizing, and receives its proper place in one of God's covenant children. It receives its honorable place in his life first. The first port of call was prayer. The year was about 860 before Christ. The time was the time of the king's and Jehoshaphat had risen to the throne. And Jehoshaphat, unlike his daddy, was a walking servant of the Lord. He sought the Lord. And during this time, it was prosperous. The land was prosperous. We read, that's why I read chapter 17. There was a lot of prosperity, as there is a lot of prosperity in Canada. Living overseas, you start to realize how prosperous Canada really is. And it blows you away. And if you read 2 Chronicles 17, you learn that the cities were well fortified, their garrisons, that they were able to protect themselves. The Philistines, the Arabic nations, were bringing tribute to Jehoshaphat. The army was skilled, and there was about a million men serving in that army. That's a pretty strong nation. But what we learn here is that God's children are never too wealthy, never too powerful, never too equipped, Never too comfortable, never too wise to be brought to their knees in earnest prayer. And so we learn that from our text. Prayer is earnestly seeking the Lord. And there's three elements that we can derive from this chapter to strengthen us in our prayer life. And the first element is to set your face towards God. To set your face towards God. And the second thing is that when you enter into a time of prayer, you can exalt his faithfulness. You can take his promises and you can send them back to heaven. It's amazing. And then you can admit and you should admit your helplessness, which Jehoshaphat does. So we're going to examine those three elements this morning as we are here together. So first we're going to be examine the first element of, our, of the prayer is to set your face towards God. Set your face towards God. One of the themes in Chronicles, and Chronicles was written after the exile. The returning exiles read the book of Chronicles. We don't think the exiles actually did. Probably the ones who had returned. And one of the things that the book of Chronicles wanted to do for the returning exiles was to strengthen them, for them to know their history. It's very important that you know your history. Christians should be well read. 
But not only for them to know their history, but it was to answer the question, who of the kings sought the Lord? Chronicles really focuses on the kings. It doesn't really focus on the prophets. It doesn't really focus on these words from the Lord. It focuses a lot on King David and a lot on King Solomon. And it gives due diligence to the kings like Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat who sought the Lord. Did this king seek the Lord or did this king not seek the Lord? Did, his, did God's people at that time seek the Lord or not? That was the question. Still the same question today, actually. Are the people in Owen Sound Canadian Reformed Church seeking the Lord? The Lord's asking that question. And Joseph, at the age of 36, began his work as a king, and he began his work with the desire to seek the Lord. And that's why he sent out these Levites and these priests into all the different towns in chapter 17 to teach the law. That's what they had at their disposal were the five books of Moses. And they would teach that to God's people. So not only would Jehoshaphat be a man who sought the Lord, no, God's people would all be able to seek the Lord because they would know to whom they were seeking. Jehoshaphat loved the Lord. But possibly now to protect Jehoshaphat's heart, possibly to encourage more impassioned prayer, because I think the Lord loves impassioned prayer, Possibly to keep the people humble as affluence increased in his land. An army had amassed at the bottom of the Dead Sea. And it seems, by all accounts, this amassed army was not some small fly-by-the-night army. Full of mercenaries and full of soldiers from these nations. And so someone came to Jehoshaphat in verse chapter, verse 2, I think it is, and said, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea. And this multitude from behind the sea was an unholy alliance between the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the people of Mount Seir. And the people of Mount Seir, it seems, are people from, from Esau's line. So we have all descendants or relatives of Abraham coming, amassing themselves at the bottom of the Dead Sea. The Moabites, the Ammonites, the children of Lot, and the Edomites, of course, children of Esau. And there they were. And the first thing that happens to Jehoshaphat, and it happens to us often when we receive news that is hard to receive or when danger threatens, God has created us this way to be afraid. Some have written that fear is the most primal thing in our human existence. Verse 3, and Jehoshaphat feared. And I think fear is okay to a point. It's not, are you afraid? It's, are you living in fear? Are you, what are you doing with your fear? And what, 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 what Jehoshaphat does with his fear is what we read following on. He says, he, he, verse 3, and Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. This should strike us. It should strike us because if he followed in his father's footsteps, his father in the time of stress, in the time of military issues, he, he did not seek the Lord. He went to, to Syria, to Ben-Hadad, and he said, can you help me uh, fight off the Israelites because they're bothering me, and I will give you all these riches. He never sought the Lord. And then when the Lord sends a prophet, he gets really angry with him. 
Jehoshaphat said, no, I'm not going to do that. And the other thing that should strike us is that Jehoshaphat had, had an army of about 900,000 to a million men, large, with well-trained captains. At least he could have called his captains in, which is often what we do in the time of stress. We see what we have at our disposal. And if it's then not enough, then we call upon the Lord. We strategize, fall into problems, pray. He did not do that. A man of God or a woman of God always sees prayer as the first port of call. In good days, in bad. You have stress. You have burdens in your home. You have burdens on your work. You have burdens and stress in your life. Your first port of call needs always to be pray. Pray first. Ask questions later. He set himself to seek the Lord. The Hebrew, it's a Hebrew expression. To set yourself to seek the Lord is actually the, more literally translated to turn your face to God. That's the Hebrewism. And I think it's good. It's a good expression. To turn your face to him is to not only move your head directly in line with heaven, and we don't know where heaven is, it's the veil between the curtains, you know, but to turn your face is to set your whole mind, your whole heart on something above. You know, when you talk to your children and your children are looking this way and that way and this way when you're trying to get their attention, maybe just my kids do this, probably just my kids. So, Sometimes you just have to gently hold their face and get them to look straight at you. You want to make contact with them and you don't want them to be distracted by their brother or their sister or their aunt or their uncle. It's you and me. It's you and me. And when we come to the Lord in prayer, when we turn our face to the Lord, when we seek the Lord in prayer, it's exactly saying that, that we let go all of our distractions, everything that is impeding us, and we turn our face towards heaven, and we cry out to God. There is nothing more important. And so much of our struggle, brothers and sisters, in our prayer life is founded in that. It's such a struggle. We are so easily distracted in our high-tech age by everything, by everything. We have our phones. Even I have a missionary, and I have an iPhone. I don't know why. But this phone tells me everything. When someone's WhatsApping me, when Facebooking me, emailing me, calling me, texting me, and in our age of Facebook and our age of Instagram and whatever Pinterest or whatever we have, all these things are bombarding us. And so when we turn to seek the Lord in prayer, we go beep, 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 or we hear some other distraction, and we turn towards that again and again and again. When all God wants is our hearts in prayer, and yet we're so easily distracted, we turn with half-hearted conviction. We turn with distractions to mundane things. We turn, but we have already hatched a plan B in our pocket. And we just strategize, and then we seek God to bless. As beloved brothers and sisters, in our prayer life, let us realize that when we come to the Lord in prayer, nothing, nothing is as important as that time in earnest prayer and supplication. Nothing. Sure, as a parent, you have children that you have to tend to. 
I've realized with young children that for me to have that time of prayer, of earnestly seeking the Lord, I've got to start my days earlier. There is no other time in my day without distractions. Pouring out your heart to God. Maybe you do it later in the evening as parents. But find that time. To seek the Lord in, faith, in prayer is to be resolute in setting your mind on that. Jesus was resolute. He turned his face towards Jerusalem and nothing impeded his process to go to Jerusalem to the cross. Jesus was also a man of prayer. You can say, well, Jehoshaphat was afraid. (laughs) And of course when you are afraid, you pray better. When you receive bad news from the doctor, the first port of call is prayer. And, and some of you have received bad news from the doctors or for your children or your grandchildren. And of course you go into your room and you shut the door and you cry out to God. See, of course he's going to pray. If there was an army amassing, we live in such peaceful times, this, this idea is just ludicrous. But if there was an army amassing, a massive army of Russians or Chinese Japanese or North Korea coming towards Owen Sound and you knew that what they were going to do was kill and pillage we face some of the stuff sometimes in Papua New Guinea where raiders come and, 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 and they'll just want to demolish a whole settlement that we're working in and they'll scare people and kill people if that was happening I know all of us We'd come together into this building and pray that God would protect us, save us, help us. But you say, well, we don't live in such times. We don't live with armies amassing. The terrorism is on the rise. We don't live with this sense of fear that, that brought Jehoshaphat and all God's people to their knees. But maybe we do. Maybe if God opened our eyes, and we saw the enemy's armies amassing against his church, amassing against the souls of our children, amassing against our family, trying to steal their hearts, trying to get them hooked on pornography or hooked into a certain addiction, alcohol or drugs or smoking, trying to steal the joy from our children, trying to get them to walk in the ways of this world. If God opened our eyes to see that fight going on, I think many of us as parents, I'm talking more to parents this morning, but to kids as well, would be more earnest in prayer. We're in a battle. Paul says it well. He says, our fight is not against flesh and blood. Don't worry about him who can kill the body. But do worry about him who can destroy body and soul in hell. Beloved, if the Lord opened our eyes to the battle that we're in in this age of consumerism, narcissism, self-age, we would realize the need to be in earnest prayer for each of our children and our grandchildren and our mom and dads and our church because the battle is equally, if not more, fierce in our world. And so Joseph had had a burden to pray and he, he calls all God's people together and says, come together, we need to pray. We need to pray. And so all God's people assembled in Jerusalem and, 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 and he stood up on a platform inside the outer court where 
Solomon had built a platform right before the altar, it seems. It was five by five by three, not as high as the altar. The altar went up ten cubits. The platform went up three cubits high. And before that platform, in bef- before all God's people, he raised his hands, he kneeled down, and he prayed to God. But before he did that, he encouraged the congregation to fast. R.C. Sproul, who is not from the continental reform, which is Europe, from the island, from the continental reform, but R.C. Sproul says that the, one of the forgotten means of grace in the church of Jesus Christ is fasting. The Puritans used to talk about four means of grace. In the covenant, covenantal reform, we talk about two, which is the preaching of the word and the sacraments. The Puritans talk about four, the, the reading of God's word and prayer and fasting as one, as well as preaching the sacraments. Maybe it is a forgotten mean of gra- means of grace. Maybe we don't fast as we should. Nothing helps more in directing our devotion to Christ than periodically fasting and removing food, alcohol, coffee, all those things that grab hold of our, our, our stomach and say, well, I want to deal with my spiritual soul, so I'm going to remove those things for this period of time, and I am going to earnestly seek the Lord in prayer. And it's hard work, beloved. Regular fasting befits the Christian life as much as regular rest befits the worker's life. I believe this to be true. Regular fasting befits the Christian life just as rest befits the worker's life. You need to rest, and there are times when you need to fast. Not every day, but there are times. And not for the wrong reasons, but to seek the Lord in prayer. And they fasted, and they prayed, and they called upon the Lord in prayer at this altar, and they sought God. They were seeking God's blessing. They were honoring God who could help them in the time of need. And that brings us to our second point. What did, what did he pray? What, what, what did he share before this holy God? There are times in your, in your prayer life and in your life of, as a Christian that the only words that you can utter are God help me. You ever have that? The stress is so heavy. The burden is so great. You say, God, help me. Or you say, after a sin that you've committed, oh, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And those are the only words you can utter. And I tell you now, those uttered in faith are heard in the throne room of God. We do not have to have long, extravagant, glorious prayers in order for them to reach into the throne room. No way. But when there's time, when you have time, and it seemed that Jehoshaphat wouldn't have a lot of time because, I mean, the army was amassing. He wasn't sure how close they were to Jerusalem. But he took the time. And in his prayer, he does two or three things. And the first thing he does is he does what the Lord teaches us to do in the Lord's prayer. He exalts God's place in honor and holiness. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do, not, and do, do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your your name, your kingdom come. It's good. It's good when you come before the Lord to exalt him in his attributes, to exalt him in his power. Very good. 
Someone says this, when you express to God his glorious attributes, you become more sensible, more aware of his greatness and his power. When you exalt God in his glorious attributes. And when you remember to recount the mighty deeds of the Lord, you deal with the fear. Your tendency in life is to fear man more than you fear God. But when you recount his glory and his power as a enthroned king who has dominion over all the kingdoms of the world, and as Isaiah says, they're but a drop in the bucket. When you pray to God with such knowledge of his power, you fear not man. You tremble at his glory. And Jehoshaphat began there. But he didn't end there. He continued. And what he does in his prayer is he begins to recount what God has promised he would do. He reminds God of this covenant with Abraham. He reminds God, if you have to remind God, you don't need to remind God, but he's retelling God what has already happened. He, he tells God of his covenant with Abraham, his friend. He tells God about the journey of Israel, that as they passed through the wilderness, God had said, leave the people of Moab, Ammonites, and the, the descendants of Esau. Avoid their land. Now these people were cruel to them and they weren't kind, but they avoided their lands. And so there, these people groups could grow bigger. He reminds God that that's what he did. And then he reminds God of the prayer that Solomon made. And obviously this prayer was written down and shared because now we're about, I don't know, 50, 100 years later. He reminds God of the prayer that Solomon made. If you have time, you can read again this prayer. He reminds God of the prayer that Solomon made that if you come to the Lord and if you ask upon the Lord in this temple, in the place of worship where God dwells, God will hear your voice and respond. God was well, Jehoshaphat, sorry, was well acquainted with the history of God's covenant people. And he told the Lord and reminded the Lord of those promises and his work of grace. One of the burdens that we have in our prayer life, beloved, is that our prayer life, and maybe you struggle with this, becomes quite repetitive and even quite banal. You just seem to be saying the same things over again. You seem to be requesting the same things again and again. And, and, and your heart and your devotion to prayer just seems to, to wasp away. It just seems to disappear. I, I, I don't know how to pray. I can't do this. I pray and I, five minutes later I just feel like I need to go. But maybe if you pray through the promises of Scripture. That's why when we pray, we pray through Scripture. If you struggle in your prayer life, I would encourage you to grab a psalm and just pray through the psalm. And when you've done that song, move the song to the next song. And when you've done that song, move to the next song. And just pray through each of the psalms. And it fills your heart with joy. And it fills your heart with conviction that the same author who wrote this as a prayer many thousand years ago is the same one who's, now you can read it, to the same God who answers prayer and responds in kind. He gives his children a hearing But if you don't know the scriptures, if you're not born over the scriptures, if the scriptures don't bring joy to your life, I tell you now, your prayer life will be banal until the day you die. The more you know of God's rich promises, the more you know of his word, you can lead his people in prayer. And as parents, 
And as elders and as deacons and as teachers, we need to be so well-groomed in the prayer in the Bible, so knowledgeable so that our prayer before them is not banal or empty or trite or flitty. Jehoshaphat's prayer was a teaching prayer as well. Our children do not know how to pray. They're waiting on us as parents. But what happens when we don't know how to pray? You pray through God's word. You pray through his blessings and his promises. And you know what? We, we live in a day where we, are, we have so many more blessings and promises than Joseph I could even imagine. We could go back to Abraham and pray through the covenantal blessings that God showed to Abraham. And just talk it out with God. And, that, and you can do that. But the covenant that was with Abraham was a covenant of split animals. Chapter 15 of Genesis. The, 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 the birds and the sheep were cut in half. And God worked, went through the, the path of the cut animals to, to, to form a contract with with Abraham and the blood was poured out and he moved between it with a torch and said unless I will hold up to this covenant and as I hold and even to the sake of death I will hold this covenant promise this covenant promise is true and enduring but we have the covenant promise of Christ on the cross if our prayer life beloved does not include the cross We have forgotten the main reason why we're together, the main reason you have a relationship with the Father, the main reason why you move and live and have your being. In your prayer, hold on to the cross. And you all know that. I just encourage you to remember it. Because there, the covenant was sealed. This is the covenant of my blood, Jesus said, for you. And so, beloved, God-glorifying prayer life never forgets the cross. And God-glorifying prayer life never forgets his redemptive story. And you're part of that story. Remember it well. And this brings us to our last point. That Paul, that that Jehoshaphat comes into the point of prayer after he remembers all the faithfulness of God. And he says in verse 12, I want to read that to you again. He says, O our God, will you not judge them for what they did to Israel and what they're doing now? Because you are a God of justice and you are a holy God. For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. He had a million men. And he says we have nothing. We have no power against this great multitude, nor do we know what to do. He was a general and a captain, Jehoshaphat, and he said, we do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. What a beautiful way to pray. If there's a text in scripture that you need to help to memorize, put that one to memory. We don't have the power. We don't know what to do here but our eyes are on you. There was a time this past year, we, we, we had a, a lot of issues coming up. And I would think that after 10 years of working on the mission field that I would have a little bit more wisdom, a little bit more insight of what to do next, how to go about this problem. And it seems as you grow in the Lord that the Lord just gives you bigger problems. 
I think also with parents, that when you have children that are small, you have little problems, and when they get big, they become bigger problems, and you just don't know what to do half the time. And you know what? That's okay. There was a time where I prayed this prayer almost every day for weeks. Don't know what to do, God. Don't have the power. It looks like tomorrow the whole church is just going to go flat. It's going to disappear. But our eyes are on you. Do something. And I can tell you story after story after story how God answered that prayer. And I know many of you have similar stories. And I encourage many of you to make that part of your story, to pray that prayer. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. It states, you know, when you come to prayer, you should confess your sins before the Lord. And Paul and and Jehoshaphat doesn't hear, though I think through fasting and meditation he is he is they are confessing their weakness. But in this last line, they are confessing their helplessness. Their helplessness. And you know, you know, when you come before a holy and righteous God, that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. You know very well that when you humble yourself before the Lord, the Lord will lift you up. You know that. So there's no business telling God what you've done and all the good things that you know and all the good things that you could do. It's more important to say, Lord, we are helpless. With this problem, it's just too big. And God, who is all-powerful and almighty and all-caring and all-kind, wants us to come before him like that. Because when you come before God and admit your helplessness, you're coming before God admitting his power. When you admit your weakness, you are then admitting his strength. And, and the psalmist says, whom do I have in heaven but you? There is no one else. And nothing on the earth besides you. There, there is nobody else. You're the only one. And so I come before you and I ask you, because you're all powerful, to hear this prayer and to come and respond in your time. And we'll talk a bit about that this afternoon, how God does respond. But as I draw this sermon to a close, I want to answer, go back to the introduction and answer this question. Deal with this question again. Is the question really, are we blessed of God or not? That's not really the burden of our life some people say yes i am blessed of god other people say well i'm not really blessed you're more blessed than me that's not the point neither is the first question as we come before our most holy god is the first question is god blessed by my prayer life that's not the most important question either though i think it should be asked No, beloved, this morning as we deal with prayer, the most important question is, do we understand the extravagant grace offered to us, his people, to approach the Father of this universe in prayer, in our time of need? Do we really comprehend that blessing? To have, as it were, a prayerful, life-changing communion with God through prayer as a sinner worthy of judgment, defies any reason. 
Do we understand today that we have more grace offered us, more ready access to the throne room, more rich promises at our disposal than Jehoshaphat could even possibly imagine? Do we really understand what God has already afforded us in this relationship? Because if we understand a bit of that grace given to us, we will, by our actions and by our life of prayer and a life of worship and everything else we do, bring glory to God if we understand the grace. The story unfolds that there was another king ascending to David's throne. Josephat was a prelude to the greatest man of prayer. His name was Jesus. The man who blessed the Father in all of his dealings, including his prayer life, is Jesus. He tarried among us, but he, like Jehoshaphat, faced a very present and powerful evil. It's fascinating to think that our Savior saw the forces of evil amass over the city of Jerusalem on the night of his betrayal. Jesus could look at you physically, and Jesus could look at you spiritually. He could see right into the darkness. And you have to imagine that when Jesus saw Jerusalem in the night of his betrayal, he saw the enemy's camp very active. What does it say when Jesus sent out Judas? What does the Bible say? It said Satan entered him and Judas stepped out of the room. You could well imagine that all the demons were putting their hand to the plow that night under the devil's command. You go. Tonight's our night. It's also very interesting on that night when Jesus was betrayed and they were going to kill him. That Jesus entered the Kindron Valley. And scholars say the Kindron Valley, it's around Jerusalem, but it reaches. There's a valley that reaches all the way from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea. That's where the enemy camp was amassing at this time in history. And this valley is also known in Joel chapter 2 as the Valley of Jehoshaphat now. Jesus entered that valley. He didn't go down south. He stayed at the top of the valley. But what did Jesus do in the valley? Jesus did exactly the same thing that Jehoshaphat did. He prayed. And he poured out his heart. He turned to his face on the Lord God Almighty, his Father, and he sweat drops of blood, it seems, before his own Father for the battle that he had to fight. But all the mass of hell, all the demons amassing in Jerusalem, we don't know how many, to attack Christ, the Holy One, was nothing compared to the fury of the cup of God's wrath that was frothing, ready to be spilt any second over Jerusalem. And so Jesus not only saw the enemy amassing, He saw that cup of God's wrath frothing. And he knew he had to drink it. 
to the dregs. He had to finish every bitter, shameful, scorn, guilt, whatever has riddled our lives. He had to finish all the payment for all of our sin. The Lord's Supper form says it well. It says when Jesus was in the valley, it says the weight of this cup caused by our sin pressed out of him the sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. And Jesus was riddled with fear and Jesus did not want to make that road forward. But what does Jesus do? He sets a testimony for all ages. He turns to God. He sets his face resolutely on the throne. He says, if you, if your will, you can take this cup from me, but not my will. It's not about me, but your will be done. And God in so many words said, my son, you must go. You'll read this afternoon how God blesses Jehoshaphat. This gives him an amazing blessing. And to Jesus he says, go. Don't look back. Don't stop. You leave the garden. You go through the valley. You enter into Jerusalem. They will charge you for murder. They will charge you for, well not murder, for blasphemy. And you will be sent to the cross and they'll murder you there. Go. He went to the tomb, he went to the tree like a lamb who was slaughtered. He was crushed in the weight of the wrath of God against us for our sins. He built, bore our guilt, he bore our pride, he bore our shame, he broke the wall of hostility between us. And this is what our form for Holy Communion says. By all of this, all of this, he has taken our curse upon himself that he might fill us with his blessing. The blessing that we receive, the prime blessing that we receive from Christ is a new life, is the grace of forgiveness, is the forgiveness of sin and the righteousness of Christ so that in Christ we have access to the very throne room of God. And Paul and the book of Hebrews says, whatever concern you have, whatever need you have, whatever you need, you go to that throne in your time of need and God will supply you not wrath, not judgment. No, you go to that throne, beloved, papas, mamas, parents, children, you go to that throne and he will supply you grace sufficient for that need. It's a promise. He'll supply favor, he'll supply grace, he'll supply you all your needs. And you and I, beloved, are more blessed than all who have lived before us, or at least before the time of Christ, to be able to go to that throne room, knowing that Christ has opened that door, covered us by his blood, and said to his father, listen to this child. I bought him. He's one of ours. And God says, amen. Amen.